Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the second part of a short series about AI in healthcare. In the previous episode, you could listen to my thinking about how AI could potentially bring better equality between the sick and the healthy. In the future episodes, you'll be able to hear about the potential of AI in diabetology, stroke research and more, so do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss those shows. But today, we're going to the most hyped AI application in healthcare, radiology. The idea that AI will replace radiologists comes from the fact that today's AI models are very good at pattern recognition. But in reality, the rich data coming from radiologists is in the radiology reports, which are to a large extent unstructured. As elsewhere, the 80-20 rule applies here, says Wajin Kim, today's speaker of the show. So the interesting thing in radiology are the natural language processing models mining radiology reports. If you're wondering what radiologists do, what are they going to do in the future, are they going to start talking to patients more, why they will not be obsolete anytime soon, do listen further. You will hear from Wajin Kim, the Chief Medical Information Officer at Nuance, who in the past worked as the Chief of Radiography Modality Director of Center for Translational Imaging Informatics, Associate Director of Imaging Informatics, and he was also an Assistant Professor of Radiology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He's also an entrepreneur who founded his own company, Montage Healthcare Solutions, which was later acquired by Nuance. Wajin, let's start with a very general question. The public perception of radiology is that radiologists only sit in basements all days looking at pictures. So what is the reality? What other assignments do you have as a professional in radiology? Considering that many radiology departments are located in basements, I guess I can understand the general perception that you just described. Um, while it is true that radiologists in general do spend a lot of time looking at medical images like x-ray, CT, MRI, ultrasound, and other imaging types, and render their interpretations of them, it is important uh, to keep in mind that radiologists do more than simply look at pictures. Radiologists play an important role in every aspect of medical imaging from when an exam gets ordered, to performed, to interpreted, to finally being delivered. For example, radiologists often guide the ordering clinicians on what exams to order for the conditions that they're evaluating. Some are pretty straightforward for many clinicians, like, you know, order a head CT without contrast to look for a head bleed, but order an MRI with contrast to look for a brain tumor. But a lot of the exams are not so straightforward and radiologists do spend time assisting with that particular uh, process. And related, radiologists help to protocol exams as well. Uh, and beyond interpretation, they often explain findings to their clinician colleagues and communicates important findings directly as well. So many, uh, I, I wanted to also say that many radiologists also perform procedures. You know, I'm a musculoskeletal radiologist and I used to perform image guided biopsies and injection of joints. Uh, so I've done, you know, uh, different types of procedures. And that's when you actually have more patient interactions uh, during those times as well. And these are just a small sample of activities radiologists perform beyond just looking at pictures in dark rooms. If we stay a little bit uh, further with the complexity of radiology as a specialty, um, how diverse are the profiles of radiologists in the field? For example, do you further specialize 
for a specific area. You yourself uh, mentioned that you were a musculoskeletal uh, expert. I can uh, tell you how uh, you know a typical radiologist um, gets his or her training. So in the United States, now every country is a little different, but in the United States, um, you know, you go to four-year college, right? And after you're you're done with college and get your you know bachelor degree, then you actually have to take an exam um, and apply for a medical school separately. I know in many countries that uh, the undergrad and medical school training is combined uh, into such as you know say you know like a six-year program. Uh, but in the United States, typical pattern is that, um, you know, a, a medical, uh, a college student, you know, graduates from college, applies to medical student, uh, and, uh, gets into a four year medical school. Uh, during the four year medical school, uh, training, that's when they start to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And let's say, you know, you decide to become a radiologist and again, not, you know, every program is the same, but the typical classic pathway is uh, a, after the four years of medical school, then you have to apply for internship plus a radiology residency. Um, and that's a combined five-year program. And after about five years, then uh, you can come out and you would be uh, graduating a diagnostic, say, radiology residency, and you become a radiology uh, uh, radiologist. Um, but at that time, then you're considered to be a quote-unquote general radiologist, meaning that, you know, you are able to read, you know, uh, many different types of uh, imaging studies. Now, someone like myself, uh, then what happens is you actually, after the, uh, the residency, you do another year of fellowship. Uh, the fellowship could be as short as one year, it could be as long as three years, uh, depending on the specialty. Uh, and that's where you pick a particular area that you're interested in. For me, it was musculoskeletal in the area of orthopedics. Now, uh, you could be specializing in, you know, in the brain as a neuroradiologist. That's typically one to two years uh, fellowship. Uh, you can specialize just in the body or the chest or the cardiovascular. Uh, so there are different, you know, um, areas of expertise that you can get into. And after that one to two to three years of fellowship, then you come out um, as a specialized radiologist. So you can imagine that the training process is extremely long, about 10 years of extra training uh, be before you become a specialized radiologist. There's been a lot of hype around uh, AI and the radiology. I think radiology and dermatology were one of the first fields uh, that got marked as the medical specialties that are going to be replaced by AI. So one thing that I want to uh, know here is your brief comment on this. I think it has become clear by today that this is, of course, not true, that AI will complement the work of radiologists. Um, so where do you see the biggest potentials? What's your comment on the whole hype? I think a lot of this began um, back in 2012 uh, with the use of deep learning through a convolutional neural network of AlexNet back in 2012 that won the uh, ImageNet large-scale visual recognition challenge. There has been an explosion of interest and advancement in computer vision uh, to hype up AI replacing physicians like radiology. In fact, in 2016, Jeffrey Hinton, who has been called the godfather of deep learning and also a part of that AlexNet I just described, said, quote, people should tr stop training radiologists now. Um, as he predicted, radiologists being replaced by AI in five, if not 10 years. And many other AI experts have said similar things. It wasn't just Jeffrey Hinton. And on the surface, it is understandable where this uh, type of thinking process is coming from, right? By 2015, the computer algorithms were doing better than humans at object detection and image, image classification tasks of the ImageNet challenge I just described. The AI experts naturally assumed that, hey, you know what? They can translate that into medical imaging and thus replace physicians like radiologists. In 2019, I can tell you, however, that very few people, even Jeffrey Hinton, 
Talk about AI replacing radiologists, kind of like what, what you mentioned. And the reason is, is because radiologists do not only interpret images like how we did, I described at the very beginning of this you know, conversation with you. Um, but what I wanted to say is imagine, just giving a slightly different example, imagine if I, uh, someone who is single without children, said I created a robot that can feed babies and change their diapers. I then go on to say, hey, you know what? These robots will replace all mothers. You guys will think either I'm crazy, an idiot, or both, right? Um, sure, these robots can assist um, mothers, but cannot replace mothers just because they can do two tasks for babies, right? And what I can tell you as a radiologist is that not only do we do more than interpret images, but even if you, when you look at image interpretations only, that aspect only, there are so many different things we look for other than lung nodules and breast cancers when it comes to radiology. So for example, when you look at a lot of the AI models that are out there that are making headlines, you see a lot of them uh, saying, you know, things like, hey, you know what, uh, this AI model, uh, you know, was able to detect breast cancers as well or better than radiologists or faster than radiologists. But I can tell you when I look at a particular image, I'm not looking at just one thing. I'm looking at literally hundreds, if not thousands of different possible things that can be present on an image. Today, the AI is very narrow. You know, people talk about narrow AI. They only focus on one thing, one finding on a one modality, meaning like on an X-ray or on a CT or an MRI. Um, and um, so there's a lot of limitations, which means that if you want to really replace radiologists just in the image interpretation part, today you would need literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of models, which we do not have, okay? And taking that aside, I mean, one of the things that um, uh, a lot of people don't realize, even the AI experts in general, is that AI has a ton of challenges to overcome before they can be widely used in healthcare because healthcare is very, um, you know, unique in, in its own set of challenges uh, when it comes to translating AI from, say, uh, research into actual clinical practice. Uh, two things there. Uh, one is what kind of uh, AI assistants are so actually used in clinical practice? Because a lot of the things that we read in the media are uh, experimental things, uh, retrospective studies. So I'm curious to hear what's already used in practice. Um, and the second thing was that uh, you mentioned how the AI models are narrow. So does that mean that, for example, different developers are only working on an AI algorithm that detects um, lung cancer, and then you're going to have another one that's going to be working on breast cancer. So basically, there's hundreds of team, uh, teams that are working on very, very specific topics. So all of that would have to be combined, and we're still far from that. Is that right? So I'll take the second part first. Um, you know, um, as far as the, um, the, the narrowness of the AI, yes, um, today, um, you, you know, the AI models that you read about in papers, for example, are, let's say, you know, let's just take the example of lung nodule, right? Um, you, you can take a lung nodule detection algorithm or model uh, that works on x-ray and then you feed it an image of a CAT scan of the chest and expect it to do the same thing. You're looking for the same finding, i.e. lung nodule, but the images are completely different. So this is why this is so different than say, you know, hey, you know, I, I know how to make an AI model that can, you know, predict the picture of a dog versus a cat with 99.99% accuracy. Well, that sounds great, but doesn't mean uh, you can um, uh, you translate that same thing and then work, expect to work in medical imaging by just applying you know supplying an image of an X-ray or image of an MRI and a CAT scan. They're very 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 different, even though they're looking for the same thing. We'll say lung nodule. Uh, it's not quite uh, 
uh, it's the, the models today are so narrow that they are only looking for a single finding on a single imaging modality. Now, what I mean, what I when I say imaging modality, I'm referring to things like X-ray, CT, MRI. Those are all uh, considered, you know, imaging modality. And uh, and right now, they only look at one thing in us on a single imaging modality. So they're extremely narrow, which means you're right today, um, as of now. Um, you know, you can create a multiple uh, different algorithms that work in work together to be able to detect, you know, lung nodule on a CAT scan, MRI, and CT, and then all those other modalities. But in reality, you have to train them all separately, and then you have to create the algorithm separately. So on the surface, they might work as if, you know, you can potentially create an uh, AI model that works on, you know, multiple modalities. But in reality, in the back end, you are creating essentially individual algorithms for every single one of them. So... But is it um, j just a little uh, follow-up question here? Aren't uh, generative adversarial networks and transfer learning exactly uh, aiming to solve that? You know, kind of connecting all the areas that are currently in still in their beginning stages. Yeah. So the GANs that you talked about is the, um, you know, people are using in medical imaging slightly differently. Um, they're using it to uh, augment data. So here's the other challenge in medical imaging, right? So yes, you know, you can easily Google for, you know, 200,000 images of dogs and, you know, you know, same number of cats and then feed it into an AI model, you know, algorithm and then you know, let it, let it train, right? So that's, that's fine. And deep learning requires a, a tremendous amount of data. And, but there are certain diseases uh, that we get to train uh, to learn to recognize uh, during our training. Um, and as humans, I don't need to see 5,000 examples of it, right? I just need to know that the, the, that particular disease exists is extremely rare, but I do know what it looks like by looking at a handful of examples, say from a textbook. AI models can't do that. They can't train, they can't learn by showing, you know, five examples of this super rare disease uh, and expect to learn it. Um, so what people try to do is they use GAN technology to simulate uh, uh, diseases in different uh, environments to train these algorithms to, uh, you know, augment the data so that you have more data than you really, really have by using GAN to create these fake images, right? Uh, that's good enough to fool the uh, human eyes and, 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 and able to uh, increase the accuracy of the AI models. And, and they do work in terms of, you know, improving AI models. But I'll be honest, I'll be, you know, uh, the first, you know, uh, I mean, you know, I'm one of those people who are extremely skeptical of using GAN, for example, to augment data, imaging data sets to train it. Granted, they are, you know, improving the accuracy, but one of the things that um, also is very uh, challenging for AI and medical imaging is that the AI models are extremely brittle, meaning that, um, you know, uh, let's say I created an, an, a model that, you know, does the... Um, uh, pneumonia detection on chest x-rays uh, using, say, hospital A's data, and it does really, really well because it was trained on it, and it, you know, does extremely well. So I show a new, you know, chest x-ray from hospital A. Hey, if there's a pneumonia, it detects it. Great. I'm very happy. I take the exact same model, and I take it to hospital B. Guess what? The model does not necessarily work as well. And this is a phenomenon, um, uh, you know, you know, that's been described as the brittleness of AI models. And we have seen this in research settings. Uh, for example, at the end of last year, there was a, a paper, um, uh, that, uh, where, you know, folks from Mount Sinai, uh, looked, looked at just like the exact same description that I just gave you, which was the chest x-ray pneumonia detection AI model. It really worked well within, the, within that, hospital data set that it was trained on, but as soon as it took an external data from a different hospital, the model started to fail. People are starting to uh, become familiar with this problem, but we haven't seen it out in the wild as much, and hence not on the newspaper articles, just because AI models are not being widely used in clinical practice as of today. But when they do, this is one of the challenges that everybody will have to deal with.
Why does this occur, actually? Because, you know, from the patient perspective, it's hard to understand why if you went to get an x-ray to one institution and then go to do an x-ray to a different institution, how could there be a change if they, right. I mean, unless they used different machines and the, the machines had a different accuracy, so... Yeah, so so that's a great question because you know some of the a lot of things that I say I think uh, for certain AI experts or those people in medical imaging, those like oh okay I can see it. But from a layperson perspective, your your line of questioning is perfectly reasonable because you're right. When I get an X-ray from Hospital A and a chest X-ray from Hospital B, when I look at it, they look pretty much the same to me, right? Um, you know, I get a one today and then another one tomorrow from two different hospitals. I look by side by side and I probably won't be able to tell the difference. And for me as a radiologist, same thing too. But here's the thing. With AI, it's a little bit different. AI is very sensitive to the data that is trained on. And believe it or not, depending on um, how the exam was protocol, how it was obtained, what scanner it was done, whether it was done on a you know GE machine versus a Siemens machine, um, these things do matter to the AI. AI, um, um, you know, they, uh, they're sensitive to these things. So that if I were to say, you know, train a whole bunch of models on, you know, one, one manufacturer on one set of protocols, and then tomorrow I decide to buy a new one, completely different vendor, different protocol, images the same, chest x-ray. I can tell you there's a, there's a, you know, a decent chance that the model that used to work really well won't work starting tomorrow. And so this is the kind of thing that we know that exists out there. We've seen it in research setting nowadays and people are starting to talk about burdenness. And hence what's happening is that now people are more aware of this. So people in AI in medical imaging are now saying, hey, you know what? A, we need a a more a greater variety in terms of data sets that we train these things on, number one. And number two, we need to always validate this. Just because the vendor says, hey, you know what, we just created an algorithm that functions, you know, that uh, works at 99% accuracy. Well, guess what? Just because you buy it and you place it in your hospital, it might not quite work at 99% accuracy. So you have to validate it using your own data. And this is all comes from the fact that, you know, answering your original question, it all comes from the fact that the modern day machine learning uh, and deep learning really depends heavily on the data that uh, they were trained on. And these are the challenges why uh, answering your other question, which is, you know, what kind of AI is being used in clinical practice every single day? I can tell you there are not very many right now as a lot of them are in research phase still or piloting phase and people are testing it out, playing with it, uh, trying it out and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, it is not something that is, you know, widely spread as of yet. But, but so you mentioned that the problem might be in different machines that hospitals use and the changes in the data set, but surely companies are already trying to develop models uh, gathered from different institutions and different machines. What does that mean? That you get a, a really confusing outcome if you just mix everything together? People have looked at other different techniques to improve the accuracy of these models by, you know, one of the other things you have to think about is, at least in the U.S., um, you know, hospital data, uh, patient data is very sensitive. Um, you know, we have, you know, the HIPAA rules and, and other things where, you know, uh, it makes it very difficult to get access to patient data. But you need a lot of data to train your AI models, right? So these startups, um, one of the challenges that they're facing in healthcare is getting access to data, first of all, from a volume perspective. Um, and then the other challenge is to get them all labeled, which is quite labor intensive uh, when it comes to radiology. You know, because of the brittleness, uh, you ideally want to get data from multiple different, so manufacturers, for example, right? And and there are different ways to do this. 
I, I mean, sure, you can create a central data repository, although most hospitals won't allow you to put their data in some central repository elsewhere just so that you can train your AI models. But the other options are, you know, things like federated learning, right? Where, you know, that's another technique where your data resides where you are, just only the, the, the algorithm moves around. And so you can potentially train uh, your model on multiple different data sets without actually you know, the, without the data actually leaving the local site. So, so there are different techniques to allow for these kinds of things. We're seeing better um, improvement in terms of AI models and with these techniques. So uh, these challenges are not insurmountable. It's just that you have to be aware that in healthcare, you just have to deal with these uh, kinds of challenges. Now, speaking with about this also is that one of the things I can tell you, you know, I'm glad when I go to AI conferences now in, in medical imaging, people do start talking about the brittleness of AI models, which a lot of people didn't until recently. Now, one of the things they are yet not talking about as much is something called the, uh, the concept drift. And I don't know if you're familiar with that um, terminology, but the idea of concept drift is the following. Let's say, you know, the AI model actually does work really well on hospital B, okay? Now, what's going to happen a lot of times is over time, that model will start to degrade in its performance. Why? Yeah, that's a good question. So that, that, is, that is called the concept drift. And the reason why is, remember what I told you, that AI models are very sensitive to data, right? Which means that if there's a change in the data that it is seeing, that it is trying to predict or make a diagnosis on, then it will, the model will start to quote unquote fail because it is now looking at a different set of data. And why does that occur? Well, that occurs because in a hospital, like I told you, for example, I, you know, on day one at the hospital B that I got this model is working really great. And then, you know, three months down the line, I decided to change the protocol a little bit. I decided to get it slightly, you know, increase the sharpness of the image or, you know, I decided to do a software upgrade and then the image is for, you know, by the manufacturer. So that changed the data a little bit. And then, you know, uh, another, you know, six months down the line, I decided, you know what, actually, I'm gonna, I just saw this new uh, uh, scanner. I'm gonna upgrade to this brand new scanner, not even a software upgrade, but an actual, you know, a machine upgrade. Or even worse, or, or better, let's just say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna go with a completely different vendor this time, uh, manufacturer. So you do all these uh, changes and that changed this data. Uh, over time, and that's the that's the concept of the data drift that happens. The AI model has not been uh, retrained on all these new data as it goes. It's just still the same model that I purchased on day one, and so it is going to perform differently. And a lot of times, it will perform worse over time uh, because there has been change in the data that I'm getting. Now, the AI companies don't get every update, right? They're not going to get an email from the hospital B saying, hey, by the way, we just upgraded the software um, or, hey, you know what? We decided to buy a new x-ray scanner. No, there's no communication like that uh, between them. So the AI companies is the responsibility of the AI companies to constantly monitor the AI performance and then notice as soon as there's a degradation in the performance that, hey, you know what? Something happened. I don't know what happened, but we need to figure it out. How can companies even ensure that all the monitoring is going on so they know that their models are still uh, up to date? And at the same time, you know, how can, if this can happen, what you just described, how can medical professionals um, work in peace and in an assurance that the recommendations that they're getting are accurate? How can you even rely on, on the support systems that you get if they're so um, fragile in a way? They, they, they can be considered fragile. That's one way to look at it. Um, but I, you know, taking the optimism perspective, uh, the reason I highlight these potential challenges is that so you are aware of it, right? But none of these challenges are so, you know, impossible. So let's just take the concept drift example, for example. You know that this is a potential possibility using AI models in a clinical practice. Knowing that, what would you do as a company? Well, you should figure out a way to get feedback from the users, whether it's a proactive, but you shouldn't really rely on that too much because physicians are extremely busy. So they're not going to 
take their time from their busy clinical practice just to tell an AI company what they think about it. What they'll do is if it works, they'll continue to use it. If it doesn't work, they'll just shut it up. In the back end, you should have a mechanism where you're constantly monitoring not only the interactions of how the, the radiologist, let's use the radiologist example, interact with the AI models on a daily basis, but also um, have a mechanism to constantly look at the accuracy of your model. AI companies by themselves can't do this, unfortunately. They need to partner with other companies that provide other workflow solutions. So for example, I work for Nuance um, as a full disclosure. I'm a chief medical information officer there. And Nuance has this you know, uh, reporting uh, uh, application that the radiologists use using voice recognition, speech recognition to create their radiology reports. In the United States, you know, a good majority, uh, more than three out of four radiologists in the United States use Nuance products to generate radiology reports. And one of the things that we've been working on is to create a marketplace where, hey, you know what, you're an AI company, you can upload your AI model to the marketplace. And in return, one of the incentives that we can provide for you is the radiologists are going to put it into the radiology reports, what they're going to do with your AI output, one of those three actions, that's going to make it into the radiology reports. And what we can do is we can send that feedback back to your AI company, to your AI model saying, hey, you know what? This is what the radiologist actually did with your output. That way you get feedback. So you need to integrate your AI solution, which is another very important topic, into the existing workflow of the radiologist so they are not interrupted by AI, but they're seamless integrated. So I'm just interacting with it within my existing workflow. So which means you need to kind of partner, integrate with the existing workflow to get that kind of feedback. The other thing is before I joined Nuance, I had a startup called Montage Healthcare uh, Solutions, which I sold to Nuance. Um, and then that's how I became, you know, part of Nuance um, as their CMIO. And the Montage is really uh, the easiest way to describe it. It's almost like a Google for radiologists. It allows uh, data mining and analytics of the free text, the radiology report text. Well, one of the things I said earlier was that it, I don't know if the, the model that works well in hospital A works just as well in hospital B, right? So imagine instead of just buying it, the AI model at hospital B and turning it on and crossing your fingers that it will work. What if I say, hey, you know what? What if I, uh, what if I can tell you, okay, you just bought a pneumonia algorithm. I'm going to look at your past, you know, radiology uh, records, your, your images and reports. I'm going to pick out 100 positive cases of pneumothorax on chest x-ray, 100 totally negative normal chest x-rays. I'm going to pick those 200 cases and I'm going to just feed it into the AI model that you just purchased for hospital B. And then get statistics based on your own data. That way you get to know before you even turn it on whether this thing is even going to work at your site or has the potential to work at your site. And that's one of the things that we're working on as well, because Montage was designed to mine the radiology reports. Um, and, um, and now it's called Empower, actually, under Nuance. Um, so using that same technology, just uh, getting the cohort of data that can be fed into the AI model for validation before you even start using it. Right. So so these are so just some of the things that people can do in healthcare to really uh, help adoption of AI models into the clinical practice, and then also, um, you know, deal with some of these challenges that I talked about. In radiology, everybody focuses on images, and uh, this is where the ideas about AI replacing radiologists comes from, but this is a key point that you mentioned, which is the meaning and the importance of radiology reports. So maybe a word or two about the use of radiology reports in designing AI models and how structured are these reports actually and how much are they still written in the free text? Just like in any other fields out there, um, you know, the rough estimate is that uh, the, the classic 80-20 rule where 80% um, of the data that's out there is unstructured. Um, and same thing in radiology and healthcare. But if you look at a lot of the analytics, um, they look at structured data, which is only about 20% or even less. 
Um, and it, traditionally, it's because you know it's been very difficult to mine that unstructured data. But there are solutions that are out there, uh, including you know natural language processing, uh, now supplemented by a lot of the latest AI techniques. Uh, that's really, really bringing great advancements in being able to analyze the unstructured data. Now, speak, you know, answering your question about the radiology reports, you typically hear, you know, structured radiology reports versus unstructured. Um, when people talk about structured radiology reports, a lot of times they're not really structured. Now, I know in Europe they use some, uh, some, some, some people use these uh, software that uh, allow you to use multiple drop-down menus to create a truly quote-unquote structured uh, report. But most radiologists do not like to use that kind of interface. Uh, they don't have time to do, you know, uh, 50 different clicks and drop-downs to generate a radiology report. That's just not how they work. And they like to speak into the computer or to a tape recorder and then generate their reports. So a lot of people, when they say structured report, uh, oftentimes it's a, it's a report that a template Right. So, for example, lungs, colon, you know, no uh, clear lungs, for example, or, you know, two millimeter lung nodule. But they're not really structured from a data perspective because they're just templated. So, you know, from a human's eye, it may look like they're structured, but in the database, they all get stored in the same way as, a, you know, just a prose report. Right. Uh, they just uh, they get stored as a, you know, one long string of text. So having said that. How can AI be used is that, you know, going back, you know, NLP, traditional NLP techniques have been used to analyze these reports. Um, but, um, you know, latest advancements in, you know, things like GPT-2, BERT, you know, ELMO, Glover. And using these kinds of techniques, you can do a lot more advanced um, analytics of it. Radiology reports are, you know, one of the main products of radiologists. Um, and they contain the interpretation. And uh, if you can leverage that information, you can actually improve your AI models. And in fact, some people have done just that, which is, you know, they, they um, decided to use radiology reports as quote unquote weak labels to label these medical images. Remember I told you earlier that, um, you know, drawing these little, you know, region of interest on every single image where they, you know, the radiologist thought there was a tumor, just to train the AI models is extremely time-consuming uh, process. Um, but, um, you know, people, for example, at Stanford have shown that, you know, uh, by leveraging the radiology reports that contain the findings in, within images, using that to weakly label the images, you can actually create pretty decent AI models. Um, you need a little bit more than just imaging pixel data in terms of volume to train the the AI models to the same level of accuracy, but you can use these kinds of techniques. And, you know, you can use these techniques to, for validation purposes and other things. So people have used, you know, AI techniques to uh, do great things with the radiology reports. Things like, for example, you know, lately there's been a number of articles looking at using AI to find if there's a follow recommendation in radiology reports. So, you know, roughly one out of 10 times a radiologist looks at an imaging study and will make a recommendation saying that, hey, you know what, I think I see something here or I definitely see something here and I need to follow this up. Uh, I need to have this person come back for another study, uh, another exam six months from now. The, the unfortunate thing is a lot of these patients don't come back six months from today. So um, despite the recommendation. And so people are using AI to first, you know, find that recommendation within radiology reports and then be able to track the patient and to make sure that patient comes back. So these are, uh, quote, you know, sure, these might not be the quote unquote, the sexy use cases of the AI in, in radiology, but these are very, very important and have a great level of impact on patient care. Yeah. Everything that you described about the use of AI in radi radiology shows that the field is changing relatively slowly. So radiologists work is changing slowly. But one of the discussions that is coming up when we're talking about the introduction of technologies in radiology is, um, are radiologists going to need to spend more time with patients? And there's a discussion among radiologists about the fact that this might not be the best idea because 
radiologist, if they do have a contact with someone, it's the primary care physician or the physician that's taking care of the patient. So where do you stand on um, in this debate? What's your opinion? Uh, the reality is that some radiologists won't speak more to patients even if they had more time today, okay? Uh, some predict the, even the opposite, um, that AI will speed up the imaging so much. For example, there are AI techniques that we haven't discussed, but there are AI techniques that are out there that will make, uh, uh, say, MRI scanning uh, time to be in a matter of minutes instead of, say, 30 or 45 minutes, right? Because AI will speed up the imaging so much that we as radiologists will be even busier as there will be more studies to read, which may even worsen our burnout instead of helping. So there are different, you know, predictions about, you know, AI. So it's not all, all about, hey, AI is going to, you know, really, really, uh, you know, make us so much, uh, uh, do, do so much of our work that we're going to have so much free time. Therefore, we should spend that time talking to patients. Um, only time will tell what will actually happen in what sequence. Um, one thing for sure, as AI advances and makes real improvements, we as radiologists will need to change, which may include greater interactions with our patients and greater role in clinical care. Now, the optimist in me believes AI will make things better. However, you cannot ignore the negative role uh, things like greed uh, can play in healthcare. So speaking about the primary care um, um, aspect that you talked about, I don't think the uh, the argument about speaking with uh, patients more is for you know is for replacing the primary care physician's role. In fact, it is more about increasing contact to allow greater awareness for the patients of their imaging findings. Um, and the increased contact with patients should really coincide with greater contact and collaboration with the other providers in the patient's overall care. So not independent of, hey, you know what, primary care guys, you know what, don't worry about the imaging findings and just gonna talk to the patients. Uh, it, it really shouldn't be uh, taking uh, certain roles away from a primary care physician, but it's more, hey, you know what, I'm gonna actually spend time to describe these things to the patients, but in conjunction with greater, same level of increased communications with the, uh, uh, of the, uh, the uh, primary care physicians. One of the things you have to think about also is that uh, primary care physicians may become busier with AI. Uh, and they may not even have time to speak with the radiologist. So it really has to be a balance. And, um, you know, if there's an imbalance, it really won't help just because radiologist wants to talk to uh, the patients more often. And the other thing is that, um, you know, one of the criticism I think people talk about is, you know, hey, you know what, the radiologists don't know the full history of the patients. And some of that is the fault of the ordering provider, and some of that is the fault of the EMR and its design. However, the information is there, especially if you have EMR. And if AI can assist with an accurate summary of the patient, then radiologists can provide greater value to the patient and other providers by better synthesizing the interpretation, by incorporating better medical history. It is well known that radiologists often get very poor history, and I can tell you from my personal experience, when we're reviewing uh, or when they're reviewing images. They, do, they also do not have the time to dig through the EMR uh, some don't even have access uh, to get that information. And this, all of this negatively impacts the interpretation. Said the other way, we know that the better history we get, we have, the better and more accurate interpretations we can make as radiologists. Uh, I, I remember when I was, you know, um, one time, you know, I remember talking to an ED physician and I said, hey, you know what, you need to give me a little bit better history. And he says, everything you need to know is right in front of you in the pictures. And I'm like, no, that is not true. Okay. So for example, if you come into the ED and you did stop your toe and you think you, you have a pain in your fifth toe, uh, and you know, the ED doc thinks, you know, you may have broken your fifth toe. Guess what? If you don't tell the radiologist that you have pain in your fifth toe, there's a chance, unless it's a really, really badly broken uh, toe, that small fracture line might not be detected by the radiologist. But the same imaging study, same radiologist, if you say the pain is on the fifth toe, then the radiologist has a much better chance of uh, finding that. And it is nothing to do with the competency level of the radiologist. 
it is the importance that's that's just to highlight the importance of clinical history and unfortunately a lot of times we just get like pain or you know foot as the history and that doesn't do me any good so um and so these are the things where um the history becomes important i'm going a little sidetracked but but the the the, the argument about us speaking more with patients yes i mean there is a definite benefit to that but there are other considerations to take into effect was it always like this that radiologists didn't speak to the patients but they just got a little bit of their medical history and the image or was it ever in the history of radiology that you would first talk to the patient to detect issues as you described and then do an imaging and then get an interpretation out of it uh historically it was more with the clinicians so for example you know i remember when i was training um you know we would just uh, go over the you know cases from last night i'll be you know going them over with an attending let's say as a resident and then during the review process what happens is the a group of uh the 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 other physicians like the let's say a group of um internal medicine doctors would come down with their residents and interns right they all come down to the reading room and say hey you know what can i go over patient this and patient b patient c patient d and then we would actually have an active discussion so the 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 attending would say hey you know what this patient came in with a fever of this and you know i'm thinking you know the patient might have a pneumonia in the right lower lobe you know because i'm hearing these you know sounds on the stethoscope and blah 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 and then I bring up that image or the attending will bring up that image and say, yes, you know what? You see this opacity right here? Uh, yes, that's the pneumonia in the right lower low. It goes with the history. Yes, uh, you know, this is not XYZ. This is pneumonia based on your clinical suspicion and so forth. So, so I learn from them and then they learn from me. So there was more interaction there. Now, fast forward to today, that stuff doesn't really happen. What happens is the everybody's so busy and everything is so digitized so that i look at the images i think this is a pneumonia it could be something else but i think it is most likely pneumonia i put that in the report i sign it off that report gets digitized sends to the medical records and the attending the internal medicine folks what they do is they just look it up in the morning on the computer so there's uh it's been decreasing communication now with ai maybe we have time to do that again uh who knows you know that that be that be that be good and that's something that i miss about the old days um in terms of um how we used to practice and we used to have more collaboration because you know we all learn from each other uh when we have that kind of thing and i can be better at my interpretation and they'll be more confident in their treatment and their diagnosis as well so that kind of communication definitely has gone down over time um as far as the patients uh radiologists um when they do procedures they obviously help the patients that always happens and in mammography in women's imaging they always talk to patients so that's always been the case um so it's not um uh that the radiologists never talk to patients it's just that certain areas uh some radiologists do speak more with patients than others Uh, to your point regarding um the the doctors and the decreased level of communication and collaboration today because of technology i think uh, one of the things that have become clear with the introduction of electronic healthcare records is the need to pay more attention to the usability and the ux of solutions which if we are optimistic are going to be designed better uh, with ai than they were with with ehrs um the hope is that the ai will definitely improve um the usability and you know uh the kind of information we can get from emr our interactions with them and then also um what kind of information it can actually feed back to us right um and um I see some promises in some of those uh, using AI for medical record for example you know um uh you know uh I can give you an example of uh conversational AI from actually Noas uh where they in recent uh years they demonstrated um using conversational AI uh to do the following so one of the main criticism of you know digitization 
uh, and use of EMR is that um, patients see the back of the physician's heads uh, as they're typing. They no longer see them, you know, their eyes as they're, you know, looking at you and talking to them face to face. Instead, the physician is looking at the computer screen and typing what the physician and what the patient is saying, right? And one of the use cases of conversational AI is the following. AI will listen to the conversation that's happening between the physician and the patient. And then instead of just purely transcribing that entire interaction, like a movie script, what it will do is it will pick out certain elements. And then, you know, let's say the patient comes with the right knee pain and then describes the pain and the physician examines her knee and then finds all these, uh, uh, you know, the, the findings and then, and then uh, makes a diagnosis of osteoarthritis and makes a recommendation for certain medications to be sent out for pharmacy. All that information gets extracted and then placed in right places uh, in the medical record. And that's that's the dream for many, many physicians, right? Um, where I just talk and then somebody, a computer actually does the all the, all the note-taking and, and, and summarization and even sending the prescription to the pharmacist all on this. And, and that's where I hope the, the AI will help. It will change the UX, uh, the UI, and then also um, really help us to, uh, you know, um, have a more human-to-human interactions as a physician with our patients and less time actually transcribing. Because most doctors will tell you they did not go to 10-plus years of medical training just so that they would be a, you know, a data entry person. But unfortunately, that's what the EMRs are today. And, and hopefully AI will change that. Uh, you know, obviously things, the challenges is that a lot of the EMRs are extremely uh, old in terms of technology. Uh, if you look at some of the EMR screenshots today, I think you'll be shocked. Um, I think you'll be kind of shocked as to, hey, you know what, I can't believe uh, this is what people pay millions, if not billions of dollars to put install in their hospitals. And this is how doctors interact with this particular software to enter data and to get data out, you know, or not be able to get the data out. So there's a lot of technical limitations, but I think even given that, um, I think AI does have the potential to really improve the, uh, the interactions. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Next week, the topic will be the development of artificial pancreas and the potential of AI in diabetology with Dr. Today Patelino, head of endocrinology department at the Children's Hospital Ljubljana and chief clinical of Dream Diabetes Decision Support System. Stay tuned.